0: I hear it said often that there's never going to be a perfect time. Eventually, you just got to go for it, and
1: take the leap and and make it happen on your own. That's the voice of Mike Weeb, owner of Beaver Creek Customs, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Mike Weeb, owner of the McGregor, Manitoba-based furniture company, Beaver Creek Customs. There are a lot of different types of companies that fall under the umbrella term of furniture business. Mike, as well as being a furniture builder, is also a furniture installer. Starting his job where most furniture makers leave off, Mike takes pieces built in a shop and makes them work in the real world. Dealing with all the unfriendly truths of working in the field, Mike has found a way to not only navigate the hard realities of install work, but to be successful at it. Working to perfect his trade with a mix of woodshop knowledge and on-site magic, he's made a career out of installing. Follow along as we talk about where to learn your trade, how to deal with clients on job sites, building relationships versus contracts, and much more. So let's get into it and hear about Mike's journey in his own words.
0: So both of my grandpas were woodworkers in their own right. Uh, my one was a professional carpenter. He, he was a framer, as along with many other aspects of carpentry, his entire career, as well as, like, a hobbyist woodworker, always building. My mom has some really cool pieces that he made just throughout his life in their house. So I always, he was always building stuff in carpentry, in the trades. And my other grandpa was a farmer his entire professional career, but always a woodworker on the side. I grew up just down the road from him and he always had a a basement shop for most of his life. And then at some point he moved his shop out to a separate garage out in the backyard. So I was kind of always around it, but I never did any of it when I was a kid. (laughs) I was never that interested. And I have like, looking back, I always think, man, I wish I would have hopped in the shop with my grandpa a lot more often, but I got into cabinetry as a trade. And then the story kind of gets a little bit typical from there. We needed a coffee table for our house so i you know i'm around tools all day long i built a coffee table and it just kind of all spiraled from there to the point where i was taking on a fair amount of side work and building whatever i could stuff for us stuff for other people it was yeah that's how i got into woodworking
1: when you say the story got typical i i hear what you're saying because a lot of people who have gone into the furniture business Or furniture building, their first move is, oh, I need furniture for my house and I built it and I like this and I'm going to go build it for somebody else. But that's not the typical story for the majority of people. A lot of people go through their entire life definitely not building things for other people and, and not building things for themselves. So there's a certain pull that some people feel towards building furniture. And growing up in that environment where everybody around you was building things, even though you didn't build then, I'm sure a lot of it rubbed off on you and and you came to it later in life where you said, oh, yeah, I remember this. This was my childhood, but now it's what I really want to do.
0: Yeah, that's definitely got to be true, especially with the my my one grandpa's shop being just in the yard where I could, I could access it if I wanted to, you know, with permission and all that. But like, I do remember going in there as a teenager and like trying to build, I don't even know if I was a teenager. I was probably a little younger than I should have been in there, but trying to build like a wooden go-kart or like just random weird yard projects, bike ramps, things like that, that were poorly made and never worked. But that was probably the truly first signs of, hey, I want to start building my own things for myself, you know, early teens or whatever I was when that started happening.
1: You've had a lot of different aspects to your furniture career, working for yourself, working for other shops, working as an installer, which is what we're going to be getting into. But let's talk about your journey through cabinet shops, getting to this point, because that's really where you got your skills and working at other cabinet shops for other people is an experience that helps people build their skills to go out on their own. So what was your experience like working at cabinet shops?
0: I'm I'm pretty grateful for the, the cabinet shop experience I do have, because I think I kind of lucked into, or I don't know if I lucked into it or or what you might call it, but I've been fortunate to have worked in just about every role that someone would need to round out their skill set within cabinet shops employed by others. So when I started into it, I worked at a small shop. It was just my boss and two other guys, me and another guy. And that shop, I basically learned to build kitchens from start to finish and then we also took our kitchens and did our own installing so it was kind of a extremely well-rounded uh, working experience. I, a lot of cabinet shops are large scale, it seems like the focus is on efficiency obviously which you know a lot of businesses should gear toward but in the situation of a small shop everyone gets to learn everything so that that small shop experience was so valuable to me And then I later on decided to, I actually attempted a career change in the middle of that, which lasted for less than a year. And I immediately went back to the trades because I didn't like it. (laughs) Um, After that, I went and worked at a large commercial shop and I was a full-time finisher. And that's another thing where I like, in the moment, I didn't necessarily like being in a spray booth eight hours a day, every day for three years. But... Looking back now, having the ability to provide high-quality finishes on anything that I build and be pretty well-versed with spray equipment and different finishes and things like that is something that it takes, well, it takes people years to learn. I just got to do that learning under someone else's roof, getting paid to, to do all that learning, and now I can provide that for my own project. So that's kind of the early parts of my cabinetry career was being in a small shop, doing everything, then really specializing on finishing. And then from there, I got into installing a lot more heavily after that, where I was did some contract installing as well as I was an employed installer, just never working in the shop, always being on site, installing kitchens or some custom millwork, depending on what the job's called for.
1: It's building blocks. It's learning the trades. And the lucky people get to learn their trade while getting paid because you're figuring out if you like the process of building and if you're good at it, and figuring out if it's something for you. Now, as somebody who decided later on that they wanted to go out on their own and do their own thing, what was it like? Being an employee, were you always thinking, I'm going to be sucking up all the knowledge that I can at these jobs so I can use them in my own career? Or did the idea of working for yourself come later on?
0: I've been in basically a handful of cabinet shops as an employee and then on my own before I moved, and then I became employed again. Before we moved from Saskatoon to Manitoba, I worked just on my own as a subcontract cabinet installer. And then so in that time between working on my own, being employed and then working on my own again, I I installed for two years. And in that time, I knew I was going to go back on my own the whole time. So it was kind of that gain the knowledge, gain tools, gain physical things that I'll need to step back out on my own. Things that I might have been lacking in the first go around and basically prepare to step back out. And in that time, I was also in a new province, in a new territory. So just meeting people, building connections and kind of, yeah, preparing the whole time along to eventually just get back to working for myself.
1: You are a furniture installer and that's what you are doing now. But you also had your own furniture company and continue to do your own separate furniture besides the installation. Now, furniture installation is a much different world, even though it's still furniture. That is usually where the line is drawn from a furniture maker and a furniture installer, where a furniture maker builds it all and then leaves it at the door and the furniture installer Takes it and installs it. So, coming from both sides of that world, what's it like to make that switch from being in the shop building things and making the switch to installing things, installing other people's furniture, but still using the same types of skills that you developed when you were building your own pieces?
0: It's, it is an interesting
1: perspective,
0: it can be very stressful because you are working with someone's very specific idea and the pieces have already been made and what's been made in shops with very specific ideas doesn't always line up with what you come across on job sites when you need to put it into people's houses. We see like finished showroom houses of beautiful well-crafted homes but reality is most of us are working in older, under renovation, not level, not square homes. You're installing something that's crafted in a certain way and then the site is another way and you have to make those worlds meet with a really high quality finish. So it's 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 interesting to know both sides Because you can kind of mentally prepare yourself for one now that now when I work in the shop, I'm able to prepare myself for the reality of job sites, which is that it's not gonna be level, square, as nice as the Instagram photos lead you to believe it's gonna be. It's gonna be a lot of work to make it look as intended by the designer or by the homeowner or (laughs) whoever
1: crafted it. As anybody who's ever installed anything on site, we all feel your pain. We all, everybody listening knows how incredibly hard it is when you have a piece that's built perfectly to square every inch of it is designed and built in the shop. And then it comes to the site and nothing in the site is ever (laughs) perfect. And you need to take those skills that you learn how to build an actual piece of furniture into the field because you need to know how that piece went together so you can adjust it to work in the field. And that is, is something that you would not be able to do if you didn't have that background in furniture already. Exactly. And a lot of that knowledge actually applies
0: to design more than craftsmanship. Just for example, allowing specific tolerances in certain areas where it's going to run up to a wall, you want to maybe leave a little extra material so that by the time you scribe it and fit it to the wall, if your intention is to have a two-inch leg on that side up against the wall, maybe leave three inches of room there so you can scribe an inch off, have a perfectly tight fit, and then you have your desired look along with a good quality install. So that's kind of where those Those worlds need to meet uh, in the design and, and have some knowledge of the shop work combined with the realities of a job site.
1: I always talk about on this show how there isn't one type of furniture business. There's not one way to run a furniture business. And this is a perfect example. You are somebody who loves the furniture world. You love building furniture but you're not necessarily in the quote-unquote furniture business as people might think. You're not building an actual piece of furniture. You're installing pieces of furniture that other people build, but that's still a furniture business. You're still using your skills as a furniture maker that you've developed over all these years, and you're still using your skills as a furniture business owner, which you are to run this company, because even though it's not necessarily the standard day that you're having as a furniture maker, you're still working with furniture. So let's talk about the business of installing and the business of what you do day to day. So what is your process for getting work? A big part
0: of my process has been social media work comes through social media for me. Oh, it's been something I've put a lot of time and effort into. So that's like, that's been a, a large part of finding business, but it still usually for me takes reaching out to someone and then they can look back at the, I actually don't even have a website. I only use social media they can look back at everything i've posted and kind of it's a built-in resume for me where people can look at it and say oh this guy who called me looking for install work can actually install <laughs> so that's kind of my mentality toward finding work is i reach out to the companies that i want to do work for and my main focus on that lately has been branching into the, the quite high-end world of installing um, and between, you know, talking with them and then being able to vet me through stuff I've posted. And it's turned into me being able to work for some really high-end clients. It's been, it's been really nice that way.
1: What does pricing look like for an installer? Because if you look at it from a furniture builder, you can see the amount of material you need, the time. And then the hard part about pricing is the on-site work or the figuring out when there's changes to the project. And that's pretty much all you do. You do only the on-site work, the changes to the project. You're doing all of the hard stuff. And for lack of a better word, that must be hard. So what does your pricing look like when a project comes in? Yeah, I, this is definitely still a work in process
0: for me, but I, I feel like I'm starting to get a, a formula that's it's working for me business wise. Um, I kind of I, I analyze the project. I'll look at it, and so with my one main builder, their projects have a very wide scope. So when I talk about being a kitchen installer, a lot of it is not. Just simple, you know, track home cabinetry. I call myself a cabinet installer, but I guess you, you're using the term furniture installer. And that's probably a better term because it's everything from kitchen and bathroom cabinets, bars, to a lot of built-in wall paneling, millwork, everything. And on those type of jobs, I've found that hourly rates are the way to go. For me, they're willing to pay me to achieve the job with a great result. And if that ends up taking me three hours longer, it's worth it for everyone to just slow down, get a great finished result and move on to the next part of the job. Um, With the smaller kitchens and more, I guess you would call them run of the mill kitchens, I just have a pricing formula where I can count linear feet of moldings, um, how many scribes I'll need to make. You can look at the blueprint, literally just see. There's 12 cabinet boxes, four fillers, and 12 feet of crown molding. And from that, I'll derive a price off that. But in the world of high-end, which I'm really gearing towards staying in and being in, I've been using an hourly rate and that's been been a nice system for me.
1: Let's talk about timelines because timelines are another very big part of the furniture business and furniture makers are usually running behind with their timelines and people who are working in homes doing drywall and plumbing and electrical and everything like that are usually also running behind. So how do you, as this middle person between all of the trades, having to pinpoint an exact target for your timeline, how are you working in that space? That's always moving around.
0: That is, it's just, yeah, it's just what you said. It's always moving. So that's a really tough one for me. Timelines are, are a tough moving target. The struggle is that kind of what I've already referred to is the realities of job sites don't always meet the realities of a timeline. A host is more wonky than, than everyone expected or something doesn't fit the way it was all anticipated. And boom, you spent four hours more on one room. And that bleeds that you into a day where the flooring guy was supposed to be there and now the cabinet guy is still there doing his thing. So I don't have any hard and fast solutions for working with timelines other than (laughs) it basically comes down to working hard and prioritizing the tasks that need to be done to keep the timeline moving forward for everyone. And if there's certain finishing aspects of, certain projects that can be done while working with another trade or come back after that other trade has finished their task to finish a certain aspect that's kind of how i juggle timelines you know the classic example in cabinetry is you're always trying to get ahead of the countertop template so like lots of times that's a book thing way out in advance because countertop shops are busy so i need to have my cabinets in before four countertop template is coming and if they're coming Thursday afternoon, you know, maybe I don't finish the crown molding in one room because I have to get the cabinet boxes set in another room for the countertop template. And then I can rejuggle what I'm doing, go back, finish crown molding everywhere afterwards or something like that. You know what I mean?
1: You always have to be open to changing conditions because that is the life of somebody who is working outside of the shop. In the shop, you can control everything, from where your tools are to the temperature of your space. But when you're working in other places, it all becomes variables. You can be working in multiple homes during the same day, and that is just a difficult position to be in. And it's something that you have to understand going in, And then roll with it because, you know, start of the day, everything's not going to be perfect. Yeah.
0: And the the biggest keys now that I'm thinking about it, the biggest keys that I think just benefit everybody are communication and honesty. And that kind of goes towards all aspects of the trades, but like promising to be done on a certain day when in the back of your mind, you just absolutely know you're not going to get done that just messes up the timeline for everyone. And it accomplishes nothing. It's a classic overpromise, promise under deliver situation that no one likes to get trapped in. So, you know, if you're working with a general, be honest and communicate within a reasonable amount of time. Hey, you know, Monday morning that you're not going to finish Monday afternoon, like you had hoped on Friday, He <laughs> need to know that Monday morning so that things can get adjusted and we can all work together to make sure guys aren't tripping over each other or or trades are piling up on site and nobody's accomplishing anything. Communication and, and honesty about where you're at goes a very long way.
1: And those two things, communication and honesty for all parts of your business is something that you should strive for because it makes you somebody who is reliable. And there can be bad days where your communication isn't positive, but at least people who you're working with can take that and they can take those adjusted timelines and they can themselves adjust to what needs to be done instead of, you keeping it all to yourself and then springing it on the people at the last minute, then they need to adjust. And then the person that they're sending it to needs to adjust. And then it just becomes a domino effect and it's not good for anyone. So I agree with you. Those two things are incredibly important in not only building, but also on the business side of a business as well. Definitely. Now, for the most part, you're probably not dealing with the client. You're not having interaction with them because you're going through, for the most part, I'm sure there's some situations where you are directly dealing with the client, but in situations where you're working with another company to install stuff, you're dealing directly with them, but you're installing in a client's home. And as anyone who's ever built furniture for anyone Clients like to get involved because it's their home. They have a personal stake in the pieces that are going in because they're going to live with them, not like commercial where people just show up for a job and then they leave and they go back to their home. These people are living with what you're putting in. So how do you deal with clients on site when you're being introduced to the furniture and the client at the same time? And then you have to work in that space. So tell me a little bit about situations like that. My kind of strategy on
0: dealing with clients, it's exactly as you described. Oftentimes, you know, my, I'm truly responsible to the cabinet shop or the furniture maker who's built and supplied. They're the ones who are, have hired me, but in reality, we're all responsible for giving the client a finished project that they're paying for. So. My, my kind of attitude toward it is instilling confidence that in them that I can achieve what they want. And that comes in a few different ways. First off, I try to arrive on site organized and clean. I'm gonna be making some type of mess usually either in their yard or something. There has to be cutting and tools are involved and things like that. but. I try to arrive as organized and clean as I possible, make a good first impression with just introductions and general politeness. (laughs) Amazingly, that's not the most common thing in the trades. Guys show up on edge or things like that and first impressions get thrown by the wayside. So I just think a good first impression along with some cleanliness and organization goes a long way to giving them some confidence in me And that makes making decisions together and things like that go a lot smoother in the long run. And then, yeah, just just working hard for them. It's amazing when you're in someone's home and you're working and it doesn't seem like they're around because they're, you know, maybe they work from home, they're in their home office or most clients try to stay out of your hair. Some are the opposite and they're all over you the whole time they're working. And that's a different story. But the ones that kind of try to leave you alone they're still very conscious of what you're doing there. So just effort is noticed by the clients and they can see if you're really trying to do a good job, if you're really trying to make progress and things like that and all that goes a long ways to just good relationship with the homeowner on site. And it is a very important thing. It's a very important thing because I've been on situations where I've seen relationships with the trades and the homeowners sour. And that's just, it's messy for everyone. It never ends well. So I I kind of pride myself on being great with clients on job sites and it's been very beneficial for me.
1: Because once a relationship goes sour, there's no coming back from that. It doesn't matter if a piece is installed perfectly. It doesn't matter if everything in the home comes out exactly how it's planned, even better than it was planned. It doesn't matter if that relationship has gone bad because the client's going to look at those pieces. Instead of seeing a beautifully installed piece, they're going to see, oh, that fight that I had with somebody in the trade. And that is what's going to stick with them. And that is something that you always need to remember. And a great point that you brought up is the idea of making a good first impression and it sounds a little bit funny but cleanliness and coming in looking like a professional is a very big start to making a relationship stay positive because you sometimes forget as a furniture maker or as a furniture installer that maybe you've done three other installs that day. Maybe this is your 10th install of the week and you think, okay, I'm just gonna go in with this dirty shirt and you know sawdust all over and meet this client and just knock this out. But that's the first time they're meeting you. That's their first impression. And just like you wanna give a great impression on your social media or your website or with your reviews, this is an in-person impression. And you always have to remember these people you're meeting It's the first time they're meeting you. It's the first time every single time.
0: Yeah. And that is one of those things that I never considered that much until I got on social media. And for the, for exactly what you're saying, I'm I'm locked away in a shop for eight hours a day. And then I finally get out and bring my stuff into someone's house. And I look like I haven't seen the sun in two weeks. it's, It's like, I never, it just. As I got onto social media and I saw these really professional tradesmen focus heavily on looking and presenting themselves like professionals, it kind of just dawned on me that, hey, this is an important thing that I should I should also care about. You know, carry a high quality vacuum. So if you do have to cut in someone's house, you can clean up or keep dust to a minimum, things like that. It's one of those things I attribute to. Social media that I, I probably should have known, but you don't know until you know how important something is. So I, was, yeah, now now I and I could always do better as well, but it's something that I try to try to do going forward
1: because it's not something that you can see when you're in it. When you're going on a job site, you're thinking, I need to go in, I need to install this, I need to get out for the next job. And you don't think about how you're presenting yourself, but when you do start filming for social media and see yourself, or you start getting reviews, or you start getting client feedback, you start taking a bigger picture of your business. And something as simple as just having a new, clean, logoed shirt for your business in your vehicle that you put on at every new project is going to be $15, $20 $15, 20 to make, but the impression that it's going to give is going to be priceless because not only are people going to look at you like you know what you're doing right off the bat, like you're a professional, but if you do a good job, they're going to remember that logo. They're going to remember that company name and they're going to share it with their friends. So it's going to be a word of mouth review, which is so incredibly important in the furniture business and the installation business in general. Exactly. Now, let's talk about ego a little bit, because furniture makers, people who are building stuff, as much as they might say they don't have any ego for the pieces they're building, they like to have a well-built piece. They like the idea of having people look at it and having people say, I love this, this is great, this is exactly what I wanted. Now, you do build furniture, and I wanna keep reminding people that you have your own furniture company where you build standalone pieces, but we're talking about your installation business right now. So in the installation business, what's it like to put aside that ego and work with other people's furniture where you might not necessarily get the same payoff that you get when you're building your own stuff and you're presenting to clients or do you keep that ego and just transfer it to the installation like looking at a piece of furniture and saying there was no way this piece of furniture was going to fit in the home the way it was and what I did made it possible
0: yeah pretty much exactly that i try to keep that that i guess ego towards just just nailing the install cuz when you a very well-built piece of furniture or a very well-built kitchen can get put in poorly. And no matter how nicely it was built, it will not look good in that house. So doesn't, not just tradesmen will notice, but homeowners and guests and stuff, they'll come by and notice, Hey, why is there a big gap here? Why is the crown molding have open miters and stuff like that? So I just try to focus that effort toward the install and yeah maybe you don't get as much of the credit but that's kind of one of the things about i guess posting on social media i'm followed by a bunch of other tradesmen and that's kind of i guess where the pride comes in it's like hey if these guys think it looks pretty good then it must look pretty good so i kind of use that as a bit of a motivation like i can't i can't show my face on here with some bad looking work and show it to all these other tradesmen that's That's a bit of the ego, but in reality, like, yeah, I just focus on nailing the install. I I do refer to social media a lot because it's a lot of what I do. It's kind of a side, a part of my business, I would say, and something my business is going to be focusing on moving forward. But I actually don't present myself with too much of an ego on my social media. I like to poke a little fun at myself, show the realities of, realities of job sites when things, I don't know, I make mistakes, we all make mistakes. So I kind of downplay that a little bit. But in person, on site, you kind of have to have that. I might replace the word ego with just confidence. Confidence that I can accomplish it and make it look really good. And the installation is my part of this project to make look really good. So I'll just come in with the confidence that I can do that and work hard toward doing it.
1: Having confidence is such a key And that is what we were talking about before, confidence in the way you look and the the way you present yourself, confidence in your skills and confidence that you're going to get the job done. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what it looks like before, you're going to make it look like the customer, the client, the builder wants it to look like in the end. And that comes with confidence in all those different areas. Now, we always want everything to go according to plan. Everything is supposed to be great. Everything, you show up, there's a piece, you install it, you deal with site conditions, you're done. But as any furniture maker can tell you, sometimes pieces don't go according to plan. Sometimes there's issues with the actual furniture piece it might not work in that space there are issues with that piece that are out of your control because you're not the one who built it how do you deal with a situation like that because i can imagine you have an entire kitchen on site and you realize something's wrong either the client sees it and they say these aren't the details i wanted this isn't the color i wanted or when you're installing it you see that something's not going to match up properly something's not going to work and that's not on you but as the person holding the piece it falls to you so what do you do in a situation like that where you need to go back to the people who built it and say this isn't going to work
0: yeah that is a a tough thing and it can often be a a big source of frustration for the installer especially if it's a repeated thing from anyone but it is a uh, It's just as simple as what I was saying earlier where it comes down to just we got to be honest and everyone basically needs to step up and do their part to a resolution and if that means a piece needs to get brought back. I have gone on site with kitchens that are entirely the wrong color, which, yeah, it's, it's like what you said. It's not me. I didn't build it or have anything to do with the finishing, but I'm standing there with the kitchen, so I'm now the middle person resolving this issue and it's just as simple as whoever's mistake it is needs to own up and resolve it and get back to work as quickly as we can and lots of times there's very few things that entirely shut down a project Um, especially in the world of kitchen where a lot of the things like colors are on the The plant-on aspects, like the fronts, the, the panels and stuff on the sides, the moldings, it's things that can be brought back to a shop to be refinished while a project can still continue. So I can still do maybe cabinet boxes or things like that to a certain point. Eventually there's a stopping point without all the pieces. So a lot of the times as the person on site, it's all about finding the next thing that I can still keep my productivity going while I'm here without everything while the people responsible fix the, the issue that came up and a lot of times those issues get resolved without the installer being able to do anything about it and a lot of times there's a compromise that can be made or a fix that can be done on site that the installer can handle such as cutting down a cabinet to fit if it was made too big or things like that. And yeah, it's a, it's all about just, it's, it's about ownership, I think. Mistakes happen, everyone makes them. The person responsible needs to own it and make the steps toward resolving it. And if it's me, I got to do it. And if it's the supplier who supplied the furniture or the kitchen, they're going to have to come up with a solution. And I just got to try to stay as productive as possible or pull out of a job site and go somewhere else while it gets resolved. That happens too. And those are what we talked about with scheduling earlier. They're kind of schedule busters, but got to be able to roll with the punches because it just it happens. It's
1: inevitable. On the technical side, on the contract side, how do you protect yourself against having a job that falls into that category of this job is put on hold? And you can't work on it, but you scheduled for this job. And now you can't jump to another job because you've already scheduled that. Do you have anything in place contractually as an installer to guard against a situation like that? I do not. And it's something that I should
0: have if I'm being honest about it. I don't. I kind of rely on relationship in situations like that, which I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening who think relationships can go sideways quickly when things fall apart. So maybe it's, I should have some legal contractual things put in place to protect myself and things like that. But yeah, I don't actually have anything set up to protect me as far as if a job falls through and I lose a day of wages or anything like that. I just, I just roll with it. And, I will say with relationships with businesses that I work with, oftentimes they'll be like, hey, this, this thing is falling through or we'll get there and something's not right. And they'll be able to say, can you head over to our other job and help our other installer today? He could use a hand or whatever, and they'll kind of provide for me if necessary. And I realize that's not maybe the best way. That's a lot of dependence on others when I should have some stuff set up for for myself to protect myself, but that's how I'm doing it right now. It's reality for a lot of people too, I I guarantee it. But I think as far as in the trades, I think many people don't have anything set up for if, if a day is lost due to something just not like, moldings not arriving on site when they were said to be, I think most guys would just go home with a lost day and regroup the next day or whatever.
1: It is the reality of working in the furniture business as a furniture maker, as a furniture installer in the shop or in the field, because it's a physical business. And sometimes things don't physically show up, or sometimes there are issues that are out of your control. And yes, you do want to keep as much control as you can of the project, but sometimes there are things that you can't account for. And yes, you have a regular contract for the installation and what it's supposed to be like. And yes, you have insurance to cover issues that might come up, but I agree with you that as much as you want to, and as much as you try, you can't make a plan for every single thing that can go wrong. You can't make a plan for weather conditions, making things not show up to the site. You can't make a plan for people being sick. You can't take everything. And yes, you should control as much as you can. But like you said, relationships, building a strong relationship with somebody you work with, with other businesses that you work with, it might not be Technically, a contract, but it's going to get you if you have a good relationship. It's going to get you just as far as something on paper can get you. Companies are, if you have a good relationship with them, they're going to send you to another job site. They're going to want to take care of you because they know that you're honest and you work hard and they want to keep that relationship. So, yes, contracts are important. And yes, You should always remember to have as much of a contract in place as possible. But relationship building at times is just as important.
0: And I will say, like, especially in my area in Manitoba, Canada, where tradesmen are getting less and less, there's a shortage of trades. It is not in the interest of a supplier or a builder to constantly be showing up with missing parts and making their installers lives tough because i could find work anywhere so it's it's kind of you don't want to necessarily lord that over people in a in a bad way but reality is if if a company isn't being fair to you and they just keep sending you home without providing work for you and it's lost day after lost day well nobody's gonna stick around for that for very long so it's it's in no one's interest for that to happen and it does fall some on relationships but it also is kind of in a situation where it's like it it's not beneficial for them either.
1: It goes both ways because yes as a tradesperson you want to get paid as a business you want to get paid for your work but the people who are paying you also need you to install that work, to make that work, to build that work. So you always have to remember that it's a two way street that if you are skilled and do quality work and are good to work with, that the people who are paying you also wanna work with you. It is a privilege for them to work with you just as much as it is for you to work with them. Exactly. Now, you are coming to the furniture business from both sides, from the the in-the-shop furniture builder, but also from the installer, like we've been talking about. And furniture installation is not necessarily an avenue that everybody thinks about when they talk about the furniture business, but it is a great part of the furniture business because you don't necessarily need a shop. You don't need all the tools you would need to build stuff. You experience different things. You get on-site skills that are very important in the building aspect of the business. So so for people who are looking to get into the furniture business, either the making the furniture that you do or the installation side, what's some advice that you could tell them to help them on their journey and also people who have been doing this for a long time people who have been installing for a long time people who have been building their furniture brand for a long time but don't feel like they're getting to the success that they've always wanted what's some advice that you could give to these people for their own businesses
0: for people trying to get into it and especially you know we've been talking a lot of installation and site work especially for people trying to get into that. I would say there's a lot of opportunity where there are aging craftsmen who could use help. You know, it would be a a situation where maybe they are on a big job and they need a hand for a few days doing some menial tasks. Opportunities like that are out there. If you know someone or could find someone um, to just get around people who know a lot. And I've been fortunate to work with some great installers over the years that I just learned a ton from. So that's it's positioning yourself with people who know things is a great way to just get into it. And then as confidence builds, you can make steps and decisions to either go out on your own or take your career in a direction that you want it to go. And I honestly like, and I've seen plenty of people talk about this, but I owe a lot to social media and YouTube as far as learning stuff. There's some really talented people that post a lot of great information on those places and there's a ton to learn. It's amazing when you do something for so long and then you just you come across someone who does it a different way and your eyes are opened. It's like, wow, I never considered installing a filler that way or doing cutting my crown molding that way or something. And immediately you've improved just from kind of doing a little bit of searching into some different methods. But I would say that's a good way is just be curious and look around at people who are doing really high end stuff. Sometimes that's just going to be online because it's not always practical to get on job sites with other people. Um, there's a lot to learn And then, yeah, kind of the the second part of that question where people who are trying to take their business and maybe been in it for a while. I'm right in the middle of that, I would say. I'm trying to take my business to another level and trying to, you know, I'm trying to stay in that, the higher end market of cabinetry and furniture. So I don't know if I necessarily have advice for people other than, I just decided to go for it. And I hear it said often that there's never going to be a perfect time. Eventually, you just got to go for it and take the leap and, and make it happen on your own. Not Opportunities aren't always just going to fall in your lap. Sometimes you just got to go for it. So I'm kind of speaking to myself when I say that, which is a, is a funny place to be. But so call it advice or call it self-motivation for myself. But that's where
1: I'm at right now. Advice and self-motivation can oftentimes be one and the same. You can be speaking what you're learning while you're learning it because it's fresh in your mind. And I love how you said, be curious, because you can get so locked into a certain way to do things, a certain way to build things, a certain way to run a business that you forget there are other ways to do it. And It's okay to try something new. It's okay to try something different in your business. And maybe it doesn't work, but maybe it does work. And maybe that's what propels you to the next level. So don't get stuck in your ways and always remember to stay curious. Exactly. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and for sharing your story and the story of your business and how you're running your business, because it's incredibly helpful for everybody out there listening. And and like you said, you are in the process still of getting to that next level. But I know with everything you've said and everything that you do in your business that you are going to get there. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Everybody listening appreciates it. And I wish you all the best moving forward.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun to be on.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com.